Well, hello there, everybody. All you happy innovators out there, how you guys doing today, huh? How's the day going for you? How's the week going for you? Hope it's going good. Uh, thought I'd sit down and kind of, you know, do a little bit of talking today. Singularity Podcast. You know, the other day I was thinking about all the different concerts that I've gone to, you know, over the course of my lifetime. You know, and just, um, there's been many, okay? But, you know, which ones kind of like stood out to me, you know, in my memory? That's what I was kind of thinking about. And I remembered this one concert that I went to. And uh, the experience was so uh, (laughs) unusual. I thought I would share it with you guys. Um, It was a concert I went to at a place called the Fantasy Theater in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, there were a lot of great concert venues in Cleveland, you know, that I either played at or saw another band play at or both, you know. And uh, the Fantasy Theater was a really old theater, um, a really old, beautiful theater, you know, and uh, I saw a lot of great bands play there. I unfortunately never had the opportunity to play the Fantasy Theater, but I played the Fantasy Nightclub, which was in the same building, but it was a much smaller venue. But um, this particular concert that I was remembering was a band called Skinny Puppy. I had gone to see them at the Fantasy, and the reason that it stood out to me Well, I guess there were a couple of reasons, but mostly because it was the loudest concert I think I've ever been to. And that's saying something because (laughs) I have seen a lot of really heavy, really loud bands, you know, in concert. But I'll tell you what, Skinny Puppy at the Fantasy Theater took the cake and it was so loud Okay, this concert was so loud that plaster started to rattle like off of the ceiling. Like it started to break off of the ceiling of the fantasy theater. And if I remember correctly, for a short period of time, they had to stop the show because plaster was falling from the ceiling and hitting people that were down in the audience. Okay, now think about that. It was so loud. I mean, I could barely stand like being in the room. Okay. It was just too loud, you know, Um, so much so that it kind of distracted me from the concert because it was just like this unbearable volume, you know, and I look back on it now and I laugh, you know, because I don't remember any other time. I went to a concert and the building started to crumble because of the volume, the sheer volume of the band that was playing. Now, what's also interesting about this particular evening back in, geez, I don't even know, probably 1991 or something or 1990, um, Skinny Puppy at the Fantasy Theater. a, a friend of mine's band was opening for Skinny Puppy, and that band was called Lestat. Okay, 
the vampire Lestat. You know, they were like a goth dark wave band and uh, they were doing pretty well. And, you know, at the time, you know, a band called Lestat was pretty funky fresh. I mean, they were pretty, pretty cool. And they had a really good thing going on with the whole dark goth kind of thing, vampires, and the music was all creepy and dark and danceable. And uh, they enjoyed a really good level of success, you know, for a local band. I mean, they they did all right. But what was interesting was the singer for Lestat was my friend. And so was the keyboard player. And uh, I grew up with him, you know. He was uh, right around the corner from where I lived growing up. And uh, he had this whole look going on, this whole, you know, vampire kind of look going on. And uh, what was really weird was sitting in the back of the room, the back of the theater, they had like a bar and standing there leaning against the bar was none other than Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. And I was... You know, at the time, I was kind of like, I guess, a little bit starstruck or whatever, because I had never met Trent Reznor before. And, you know, here's my introduction to Trent Reznor. And he was talking to the lead singer of Lestat after their show was over and Skinny Puppy was getting ready to go on. And I always kind of thought it was a little bit strange, maybe a little bit of a coincidence or something, but... Not too long after that, you know, Nine Inch Nails really started to break. I mean, they had already put out Pretty Hate Machine and they were, I believe, recording the Downward Spiral at the time I met Trent Reznor. But what was weird was not too long after that, Trent Reznor kind of adopted this vampire kind of look. And, you know, I don't have any evidence or proof or anything, but... I gotta kind of wonder if that buddy of mine from Lestat, that lead singer who had that look and all that stuff going on, I have to kind of wonder if he had any impact on Trent Reznor, you know, changing his look and adopting that kind of look because it was really quite similar, you know? Uh, Like I said, I don't have any proof of that, but you know, gotta kind of wonder. But, you know, anyway, this concert, this Skinny Puppy concert, was the loudest concert I went to. The loudest one I can remember. And that, you know, I mean, they were louder than Metallica. I mean, they were louder than Machine Head. They were louder than Corrosion of Conformity. I mean, they were, it was unbelievable. Um, There were a lot of concerts I went to as a young guy. And uh, a lot of really good ones, too. I think the best concert that I ever went to, that I witnessed with my own eyes. I saw uh, U2 on the Zoo TV tour, and uh, I had a front row seat. And wow, it was pretty awesome. And uh, that would be first, probably, but a close second would be Depeche Mode at the Blossom Music Center um, on the Violator tour. I went and saw them, and I once again had front row seats for that. I had to buy my tickets from a scalper. And uh, with the U2 Zoo TV tour, the way I got that front row seat was um, I knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. 
and I got hooked up on the day of the show, you know, because I was trying to get tickets for the concert and it was sold out. So I knew a guy and he hooked me up. I got a ticket and it was a last minute kind of thing. I got a front row seat, you know, for the right price. And uh, let me tell you, it was worth every penny. It was such a great concert. I mean, the music was great and the stage set was great. You know, at the time, it was like, you know, state of the art, cutting edge, TV screens everywhere, you know, cars hanging from the, the rafters, you know. But even uh, in today's standards, uh, it was a standout concert, you know. Yeah, how many concerts have you been to? I wonder, you know. What was the best concert you ever saw? You know, what was the best performance that you ever saw? What band? You know, how long ago? Feel free to leave me some comments in the comments section. I'm kind of curious to hear what you have to say. Um, but that brings me to this other idea of something I wanted to talk about, which is um, this thing called the volume wars, you know, uh, the volume wars of music. And, you know, what am I talking about? Well, OK, I'll explain it. Um, OK, the volume wars are kind of like um, basically this controversy, okay, over the level in which music is mastered, okay, uh, in order to be delivered to the radio or delivered to records and stuff like that, okay? And back in the 90s, um, the very, very early 90s, maybe even the late 80s, um, that's when this whole volume wars thing kind of got underway. Okay, and I believe it started with the group Oasis. Okay, they're the ones who really, as far as I know, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, I think they were the first band to really kind of push the envelope, okay, for volume, the volume of the music. So when their songs came on the radio, you know, they were actually louder, or they seemed louder than everyone else, okay? And you know, since then, um, you know, other bands caught on to that and they started to really kind of push it and go beyond even how loud uh, Oasis had made their song. And it became a thing, you know, where bands would have to make a decision about, you know, how loud they wanted to master their material. And uh, some artists, you know, just opted to not participate at all. They just kept, you know, the traditional mastering volume of, you know, for their music. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm a singer songwriter. I record my own music. So at some point, you know, I had to make a decision myself. Okay. And uh, I have decided to not master my music extremely loud. Okay. Um, I just don't think it's necessary to push the envelope that way. It's not important to me that my songs are louder than everyone else's. So you may notice that when you play my songs, like on my YouTube channel or SoundCloud, or even if you bought a CD or whatever, um, you may notice that my songs seem a little bit quieter or maybe a lot quieter sometimes compared to the other groups that are releasing music. but. It was a conscious decision on my part, 
okay? Kind of like, you know, in my own way, like a protest of that idea. I don't want to participate in the volume war, so that I think it's silly. And uh, probably, ultimately, in my opinion, it's counterproductive. You know, so there you go, a little explanation, just in case you ever noticed that my music tends to be maybe a little bit quieter than everyone else. Uh, It was a conscious decision that I've made. So, anyway, you know, I wanted to mention really quick, now that I'm thinking about it, that last episode that I did about mastery, I had a few comments from people about, oh, you know, you know, I don't, I don't appreciate football. I don't like sports. I don't like, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I thought about it and it's like, I wanted to tell you, okay, clarify this, I guess, uh, to all you happy innovators out there who listened to that episode and you were kind of like taking the position like, oh, you know, I don't like sports or whatever. You know, the point I was making or the point I guess I'm trying to make right now is that your appreciation of football or my appreciation of football was not the point. The point was mastery, the idea of mastery, regardless of, you know, football, sports, music, whatever it is, you know, a mastery of what you do. Just so, you know, you know, and I clarified it to you, I just felt I needed to. I wasn't talking about football, right? I was talking about mastery. So I just wanted to make that point because it's something that I think needed to be clear. You know, it needed to be clear. And, you know, speaking of mastery, (laughs) you know, here's a thought for you or a question, I guess, but have you ever had a, a great teacher, you know, like in school? a really great teacher, or maybe you had more than one that stands out in your memory. And, you know, when you really think about it, like that is such an amazing opportunity and an amazing gift to have a great teacher, isn't it? And especially when you have a teacher who has a mastery over their subject that they teach, you know, And also, too, like they have a mastery over how to command the classroom, you know, and uh, I guess maybe it's because I'm getting a little bit older or whatever. And you start to look back on your life, you know, you reflect on things. Um, And maybe also, too, it's because my wife is an educator, too. Um, But uh, I find myself from time to time, you know, remembering some of these teachers from my past that were just so great. You know, they had such a huge impact on me as a young man. And, you know, I can name a whole bunch because I really was fortunate enough to be in a very good school system when I was younger. And, uh, uh, you know, the teachers were just, a lot of them anyway, were just like top shelf you know, like at the top of their game. And by the time I had showed up, you know, in their classroom as a student, you know, they had been teaching for like 30 years, you know, and they had had all of my brothers and sisters, you know, pass through their classrooms. And, 
you know, I was the fifth of six children, so, <laughs> you know, they, they knew my family by the time I got there. And uh, there was this one teacher I had, I'll tell you what, he stands out in my memory, okay? Uh, his name was Mr. Fawcett. That was his name, Mr. Fawcett. And uh, he was such an amazing teacher, not just because he had a mastery of the subject that he taught, which was like English and creative writing, you know, um, uh, teaching the use of the English language in literature and how to write, not how to read, but how to write. And um, this guy was like a hero to so many students. Okay. Uh, he was a mentor. Okay. To that guy from Lestat. I was telling you about that singer. Uh, Mr. Fawcett was a mentor to him and to the keyboard player from Lestat. I know that for a fact because, um, you know, I was friends with him and he was a bit older than me, but, uh, I had been in a band with him, so, you know, I was hanging out with him a lot, and I knew his sister. I was pretty close to his sister, actually. We were pretty good friends. So, uh, you know, I I know he revered Mr. Fawcett as well, and uh, Mr. Fawcett was also a mentor to my sister, my oldest sister, who, you know, subsequently went on to become a professional journalist, and uh, she's actually... Uh, <laughs> Uh, a pretty, you know, she, she managed to rise pretty high. Uh, she's not famous, but she is a very powerful woman, at least by my best judgment or by my standards. You know, she's done remarkably well. And, um, you know, she would probably attribute a lot of her early ambition and success and confidence to being a student of Mr. Fawcett. And, you know, I can say the same thing uh, about him. He was very similar, okay? Mr. Fawcett, the teacher, was very, very similar to the teacher from Dead Poets Society, played by Robin Williams, Mr. Keating. A uh, great movie. It was such a huge impact on me, which is like a separate thing. Maybe I'll talk about that a little bit too. But when I went and saw that movie for the first time, it was uncanny how similar he was to Mr. Fawcett, like his tactics and his strategies and how to break down the anxiety in someone about reading originally written material, their own original material in front of the classroom. You know, he was so good at that. I mean, I remember I had a friend, this girl, her name was Denise, and uh, I'll, I'll spare her last name because I don't even know where she is anymore. But uh, she was a good friend of mine, and she was really, really timid, and um, she had a lot of anxiety, you know, about reading in front of the classroom. And it wasn't just like, you know, she had a problem with it. It was like a phobia. Okay, and I watched Mr. Fawcett kind of break down all of those barriers right in front of the classroom, talking, talking to her while she was sitting in her desk, you know, trying to read aloud. 
And this guy just kind of dismantled all that fear and anxiety. And just like in that movie, Dead Poet Society, all of a sudden, Denise started to read and she had confidence. And I watched it happen in front of my eyes. You know, this guy just knew how to break that all down, you know, like that is a sign of mastery, isn't it? Like she was so timid and so afraid. And, you know, I'll tell you what, she was German. So she was like, (laughs) she was like a pistol. Okay. Like when she didn't want to do something, she wasn't going to do it. You know, she'd like punch you in the nose if you got in the way, like she's not going to do it. She was that kind of chick. And uh, I just watched Mr. Fawcett kind of melt her like butter. And the next thing you know, bam, there it is. You know, have you ever had a teacher like that? Do you know somebody like that? You know, think about it. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, uh, It was kind of funny, I guess. Um, I guess it was like kind of like a token or a sign of how much Mr. Fawcett was beloved by the students that he had, but a group of students, I think that guy from Lestat was involved in this group, uh, made Mr. Fawcett like a Superman, like, like a superhero costume, you know, but instead of having like an S, it had a D on it for didactic man. That was like the joke. And, uh, I remember being in his classroom and he had the didactic man costume hanging on the wall, you know, as this, I guess, a gesture from his students that he had such an impact on. They all got together as like a, I guess, a funny little thing. And they made him like this, the superhero suit, didactic man. And, uh, once a year, every year, Mr. Fawcett would teach class in his didactic man suit. (laughs) This is real. This was my life. Um, it was amazing. Just a really funny guy, a really light guy, you know, uh, great memories, great teacher, great learning experience, you know, and they're not all like that. You know, that's a unique thing. It really is. You know, I had another teacher that stands out in my memory and his name was Mr. Livingood. Can you imagine Mr. Livingood? That was his name. And uh, he was a short, stocky guy, you know, uh, overweight, you know, uh, bald. But he was really funny and he was really smart and he really knew his subject matter. And he taught American history. Okay. Now, he was another example of one of those teachers. Okay, that had had everybody else in my family already. So by the time I show up in his classroom, man, he knows my family. Okay. And uh, Mr. Livingood, I think in my best memory, really liked my brother, Steve. Like they had a good relationship, you know, good, uh, funny, light, open relationship where they could talk. And he cared about my brother and he really helped him along, you know. And I remember my brother talking to me about him and, you know, Steve would kind of tell me, oh, you know, Mr. Livingood had a quiz today and uh, there was only one question on the quiz. And the question was, why was George Washington 
elected the first president of the United States. And the answer was, you know, not some long, you know, diatribe about why George Washington was made president. The answer was simply because he was there. That was the answer. And I knew that because my brother Steve had told me about this quiz. So sure enough, I'm in Mr. Living Good's class one day. We have a pop quiz. The question is, why was George Washington elected the first president of the United States? Bam, I got it. Because he was there. And ever since then, ever since that moment, anyway, uh, me and Mr. Livingood just jived. Like, and this guy taught me, you know, he taught me American history and he did it in such a clever way. He did it in such an engaging way. Um, I can't put it into words really because it was really like every day, you know, so many different things he did, so many different strategies of getting this information into our noggins, you know, teaching us this information, transmitting the history of the United States to us, you know, uh, again, a man who had a mastery of what he was doing, you know, I mean, I suppose you would have to, right? After 35 years or 40 years or whatever of doing the same thing, like with passion and conviction every day for 30 or 40 years, man, you've got to have a mastery of what you're doing. And it's so important, you know, um, it doesn't come easy. You know, mastery doesn't come easy. And, you know, being able to teach people things, you know, that doesn't come easy either. You know, so let's take a moment, I guess, like right now, just pause for a moment, you know, and think about those teachers that we've had, you know, maybe share something in the comments with me, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. You know, if you were fortunate enough to have a, a positive role model like that, you know, outside of your family, outside of your friends, like somebody in school, you know, who really cared about you and your success, right? And your intelligence and your ability to go out into the world and succeed, you know? They did their part, you know, they did their part, you know? I suppose, you know, I would be remiss because there's two more teachers I wanna talk about. And one was a woman, her name was Miss Lahane. She was Irish and very cute, man. Wow, did I have a crush on Miss Lane. Whoa, but I'll tell you what, she was my special education teacher because, you know, I was, you know, back in the day, what they call learning disabled. You know, I had a problem with math. Um, I struggled with math. So I was in her classroom for part of the day to learn math. And uh, she actually had a pretty major impact on me as a person and in kind of a really unique way because I'll tell you, she was kind of a progressive teacher, okay? She was uh, teaching, you know, special education back in the early 80s, right? Right when special education in the United States was kind of getting a foothold and becoming a thing in, you know, the schools of the United States. And, uh, 
uh, she had to be progressive in order to be doing the work she was doing. So in her classroom, because special education was kind of such a new thing and unknown, she always had like new kind of concepts, new things in her classroom for us to kind of go through, you know, to pass through. And she would kind of see how we took to it and see if there was success with it or not. And what am I talking about? Well, I'll give you a really good example. Okay. And this is probably the reason why I'm even mentioning her right now. Okay. Is Miss Lehane had in her classroom, this little station. Okay. This little desk, like often this little cubicle in her room and it had a cassette recorder. Okay. Not like a boom box, but like one of those, <laughs> you know, from back in the day, those old Emerson, you know, tape recorders with, you know, the dial with the numbers on it. You can reset the numbers and you, know, you remember, right? Those black things are rectangular. If you don't remember, it's probably because they were around before you were even born. <laughs> okay. But I'm a dinosaur. So I remember this stuff. And in this cubicle with this tape thing, you know, if you had uh, managed to get your studies done, you'd managed to do the right thing. You got done, you know, whatever. She would reward you by letting you go sit in the cubicle and, and either read or listen to music or whatever. And in this little tape recorder, okay, she had this cassette of music that was 60 beats per minute, okay? And this cassette was kind of an experiment, you know, from some company somewhere, some special education company, um, where they were trying to experiment with music and you know how that affects the human brain and learning and those kinds of things right so on this cassette they had just repeating you know over and over again they had pacabal's canon you know that classical piece very slow very calm right you see where i'm going with this yeah yeah i mean if you listen to anything i do right pc3 especially that stuff that chilled out ambient stuff. Now, where do you think I got that idea from? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I didn't even realize that. Okay. I didn't even realize that until maybe like, you know, 15 years ago or something. I, I remembered, you know, talking to my wife about Miss Lehane, her classroom. It was this, it was that. Oh yeah. She had this tape recorder with this tape and whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, like, I guess I didn't realize you know, like, wow, what a, what a strange thing. Um, especially because now that's like a very large part of what I do as a musician. You know, I mean, it, I dial right into that chilled out stuff, you know, don't have any problem recording a new one at any given moment. You know, it's like I could do it all day. So it's really kind of funny. I have to kind of wonder. Yeah. Thank you, Miss Lehane. Thank you for that gift that I don't think that you or I even realized at the time was going to have such an impact on me. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, okay, that's the only reason that I wound up making ambient chilled out music and stuff, but you really have to pause for a moment and give credit where credit is due. So there you go. Now I'm going to talk about one more teacher today, one more great teacher. And it was kind of funny. Actually, you know what? 
I might talk about two more because there's another one that's pretty good too. Um, okay, when I was in high school, I had a teacher that was um, my art teacher, okay, and uh, Mrs. Skinner. And uh, Mrs. Skinner was kind of a funny teacher, okay, because I guess, you know, in retrospect, you know, art class is kind of funny, you know, the whole thing. It's like, you know, <laughs> uh, it's kind of like controlled chaos. <laughs> At least my art class was, you know, you have your students that, you know, this, this whole range of students because art was a requirement at my school, so you had to take at least one class of art. I guess they wanted us to feel cultured or be cultured or something, right? But, uh, <laughs> you know, in Mrs. Skinner's art class, uh, I took, you know, four years of art with Mrs. Skinner. And uh, actually, no, I took three years of art with Mrs. Skinner. My first year was with another woman my second and third and fourth year was with Mrs. Skinner. And, you know, you have these students that like don't care at all about art at all. Like they don't care. It's like uh, it's like a, a lunch break for them or like, a you know, recess for them. And then you have these other people like on the other side of the room that are like totally dedicating their lives to painting, sculpture and, you know, having a career in the arts, you know, so you would have this mix and mash clash of these two totally different types of students, right? And uh, I kind of landed somewhere in the middle. I think a little more towards the, you know, people who care about art, you know? But I'll, I'll admit it was a little bit of recess for me too, you know? And for the most part, Mrs. Skinner didn't have any control over what was going on in her room, for the most part, okay? God love her. Um, so my memories of art class are hilarious. I mean, it was just like a free for all, you know, we had people like just, you know, doing whatever they wanted and the kids just did whatever they wanted. And the reason that I remember Mrs. Skinner so fondly, okay, um, is not because her room was chaos. All right. It's because, um, I think she took a personal interest in me. Okay, she saw that um, I was a you know like a visionary. I had uh, eclectic ideas and styles, and I was a musician. She knew that, so I was already kind of like gearing myself in that direction, and she knew that. So she was very encouraging to me. And um, what was really cool about Mrs. Skinner, at least as far as I was concerned, like in my life, okay? Um, she was the first person in my life that really encouraged my art, okay? Painting and all those kinds of things. She really did. And she was also the first person to give me like real work opportunities, like with graphic design and stuff like that. She hooked me up with the Coast Guard. They needed somebody to supply them with some original paintings. Okay. And uh, she elected me. 
to do the job, and I did a series of paintings for the United States Coast Guard, and I thought that was pretty cool. I didn't get paid, okay, but um, I got a lot of exposure, and uh, it was a great opportunity that was kind of set in my lap by this teacher that I had. And what was even cooler was, by the time I was a senior in high school, I had kind of finished all of my projects that were going to be due in this classroom. So I wound up graduating technically from my art class a year ahead of everybody else, okay? I guess I need to stop and think about that a little bit more. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I, I, I forgot that this happened, you know, I forgot. But uh, so what that meant was that my senior year she had to kind of invent a curriculum for me because I had finished everything already. So my senior year of high school, I was the first art five student that my school had ever had. True story. Isn't that cool? She actually did that for me. I mean, talk about encouragement, right? Like, you know, I, I didn't see myself as anything special, okay? I just could move through projects very quickly, I guess. And she saw that and she encouraged me to, you know, become the first art five, level five student in my school. And that meant that I had independent study for my senior year so I could do whatever I wanted to do. Now think about that. What a great opportunity. I spent my senior year like having the best time in art class. I mean, I made jewelry. I mean, all kinds of stuff. I did paintings, I did sculptures, I did, you know, just sketches, drawings, t-shirts, clothing. You know, I did all kinds of stuff, you know, my senior year, it was amazing. And, uh, you know, I gotta tip my hat to Mrs. Skinner. I don't think about her too much, but I probably should. I think about her a little bit more. But like I said, it's, you know, you know, the older you get, the more you remember, right? These great teachers, these great people that come into your life and they change things for you. They change the path for you. They open it up for you. They have confidence in you. They teach you to have confidence in yourself. You know, they, they see your vision, they see your limitations and they work with you and they make it better, right? I mean, what a great, great thing. The teachers are so unsung, they don't get enough credit. And nowadays you hear all this political jazz about, you know, the curriculums are all effed up and the, you know, it's all conspiracy and you know, they're trying to destroy society through school, through the public school system or whatever. Well, let me tell you, you know, that might be the case for some people, you know, but it wasn't the case for me. And it certainly wasn't the case for my wife. And I could tell you something else too. And I know this for a fact that, you know, being married to an educator for as long as I have, I'll tell you one thing I do know, okay, is that the people who teach students in public schools or even in private schools, anybody who calls themselves a teacher and they're really serious about it, they work so hard you know, it's not 
you know, an easy job. It's not willy nilly, like they just do whatever they want and teach whatever they want and teach whenever they want. It's like, it is like a machine and they are dedicated. These people are so dedicated, not just my wife, but all the, her colleagues, you know, these are, these are people that I know about, you know? So when I hear people kind of dissing the public school system in the United States, yeah, it has its flaws and it has its kinks and its problems that can be worked out. But don't go after the teachers, man, because they are in the trenches. And these are people who get paid very little and they are extremely dedicated to what they're doing. And that goes for, you know, the teachers, the administration, everybody. You know, it's it's such a serious business, okay? And let me tell you, the people who aren't serious about it, you know, the goofs that come in because they, you know, they wanted to be a writer and they became an English teacher because they couldn't become a writer, you know, they don't last long, you know, they don't stick around. The people that I know, like my wife and her friends and the people she works with, all the people that she's worked with over the years, they came to play, man. You know, they're, this is serious stuff. And if you're a clown, you got to get out of there. You know what I mean? And the system has a way of weeding out the, the dorks, you know? And uh, let me tell you, my wife's not one of those. And neither are a lot of her colleagues. So there you go. Ooh, my soapbox. But it, I'll tell you, I, I hear a lot of stuff about that. You know, uh, it's just, it's uh, part of the zeitgeist now to you know, hammer on these, these teachers, these educators, like they're, you know, conspirators, you know, against our children, you know, Ugh, so far from the mark. Trust me, people who talk like that have absolutely no idea what is going on. <laughs> they just don't have a clue. They work so hard, you know, weekends, man, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, you know. So, okay. Okay, I'll give you one more teacher, one more story, because it's funny, okay? I had a teacher <laughs> who taught a class called Industrial Arts, okay? That was the class. It was pretty much a shop class, okay? And it was like for the stoners, for the burnouts, you know, the deadbeats, you know, this was that class, you know? And I was in it. You know, and if I remember correctly, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that it was a required class as well. So like you had a, you know, a cross between stoners, burnouts, and then like, you know, bando nerds, you know, scholars, you know, like they had to take that class too. And they're all together in a room. And, but for the most part, okay, um, it was a class that was populated by, you know, shitbirds, you know, like me and my friends. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, you know, they had all kinds of like, you know, <laughs> like dangerous equipment, you know, <laughs> like band saws and chop saws and jigsaws and drills and just, you know, <laughs> just all this dangerous equipment and you know this classroom full of either people who cared 
very little or, you know, kids who were like high, you know, like, and this poor teacher, Mr. Queso, that was his name. And, ah, he was so, uh, this man, he struggled every day to keep his arms around this situation. I mean, and it was chaos in his room. It really, it really was. I mean, if art class was chaos, yet at least there weren't like dangerous tools around. Okay. And, uh, oh my gosh, Mr. Queso struggled so hard to, you know, keep his arms around that situation. And the kids were just going off. Like I remember sitting uh, in his classroom and, you know, he had one of those drop ceilings in his classroom. You know, it's made out of like that foam kind of stuff, you know, with the grid and the little dots in it, like the little holes, like Swiss cheese, you know, in it. And you look up at uh, Mr. Queso's ceiling and there were all these little sheet metal triangles and pencils, anything that was sharp that the kids would throw them and they would stick into the ceiling, you know? And I don't know if Mr. Queso didn't notice that or if he just didn't care, but his ceiling had, you know, pencils and these little metal triangles and God knows what sticking out of the ceiling, like hanging there. Um, I, I don't know. It was just so funny. And um, I look back now on Mr. Queso, actually. My wife had him too. So she has a shared you know, memory of him with me. And uh, we've both kind of come to the conclusion that that guy was like special. You know, I mean, he was really really special, very tolerant, you know, a very decent and good man who really tried hard, who really meant well, but no matter how hard he tried, his classroom was off the chain every single day. And he never really lost his temper. He never really lost his patience. He would raise his voice a lot, you know, trying to like, you know, save somebody's life, like from getting their hand cut off on the bandsaw, you know, he would yell, you know, but for the most part, they're talking about a guy who never lost his patience with anyone, any kids, and uh, man, did he have a reason to, you know, Uh, I guess a lot of kids got sent to the office and a lot of kids got into trouble in his classroom, but he wasn't a mean guy, you know? So hats off to Mr. Queso and his memory. I think that uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Mr. Queso passed away not too long ago. Uh, my wife and I heard. So uh, God rest his soul. You know, wherever you are, Mr. Queso, thank you. Uh, great teacher, great man. So there you go. I did a whole, what, almost an hour talking about teachers. I could probably talk more. But uh, I'm not going to today. I'm going to get back to work. And uh, you'll be hearing from me soon, folks. And um, you know what? I'm going to leave you with a little bit of music at the end of this podcast again. I think that's going to become like a tradition here at the Singularity Podcast. We're going to try that for a while. You know, putting some music at the end of each podcast. And uh, I'm just going to share a piece of music with you called Exit, Exit. Um... It was a, uh, a piece of music I made a while ago. I released it under Creative Commons. It's a real chilled out kind of ambient piece. 
So if you feel so inclined, stick around to the end of the podcast after the sign off and listen to Exit Exit by PC3. Um, so, ladies and gents, <laughs> this is Mike Bostwick from Pipewire Records signing off. And remember, folks, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Take it easy.